Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 30th, 2023, the Why Does Everyone Hate Bidenomics edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm here, of course, with John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Howdy, John. Hello, David, and person to be named later. And the person to be named later is none other than Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello. Just think of all those listeners on the edge of their seats hoping that it Wondering, was else. hoping it was going to be somebody else. <laughs> Who do you think they were hoping it was? Well, I think well, some of them. Really Henry someone. Kissinger. Was anyone hoping it would be Henry Kissinger? Couldn't be Henry he Kissinger. He died, David. Let's be yes. respectful. Once um, they heard my voice, their disappointment was already registered. We are not going to talk about Henry Kissinger, whose death was just uh, announced, but I'm sure there will be no shortage of takes about the former Secretary of State that you can avail yourself of in podcast and print and all other forms. We are going to talk about why Americans hate the economy, even though the economy is in excellent shape, and whether President Biden can overcome that in 2024. We'll talk about yet another Supreme Court case that could gut the government's ability to function. And then we will talk to Tim Alberta about his sad and astonishing article in The Atlantic taken from his forthcoming book about his family and about white evangelical America. Um, And of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we are going to be conundruming next week in New York at 92nd Street Y on December 7th. We have plenty of seats available. We've moved to a larger room because our guest is going to be Stephen Colbert. And uh, lots of people want to hear Stephen talk about conundrums. But you may want to hear us talk about conundrums, too. There's so many good ones. Um, just a couple more that, that have been sent in. Is it more important to be clean or to be organized? Good question. Let's say you get a parrot. It can spend the rest of its life telling you jokes or telling you compliments. Jokes versus compliments. Which do you choose and why? We're never going to get through them all. Um, There's so many other good ones. Please join us December 7th at 92nd Street Y. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Live to get tickets. There's also a VIP ticket package uh, with a pre-show cocktail hour from 6.30 to 7.30. I don't know if there's tickets still available. There might be. And if you can't come to the live show, but you want to stream in, there is a virtual option. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Live to check it out. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. 
That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Bidenomics, by almost any reasonable standard, has been an amazing success. The president's policies have helped bring down inflation from about 10% to 3%, restored the economy to full employment, raised wages faster than inflation, built bridges and roads and clean energy infrastructure, and done all this while avoiding a recession. The United States has fared far better than any major world economy in the wake of COVID and in the post-COVID era. And yet Americans do not feel it. 97% of Republicans say the economy is, is fair or poor. And even most Democrats, a majority of Democrats, 60 plus percent say the same, even though the economy is not fair or poor. The economy is pretty good. It's very good, all things considered. And this is shaping up to be disastrous for President Biden and the Democrats in the 2024 election if these sentiments continue. So, John, what, broadly speaking, is going on here? The one thing we should discuss is whether you mean actually that Biden's policies have created the economic conditions that exist at the moment or whether he just happens to be president during this period of improvement, because obviously there's a huge debate about how much effect a president's policies can have on short-term economic conditions. Some of those things you mentioned, the infrastructure uh, work, that actually probably won't pay off economically for years and years and years, which we should all uh, laud. You want presidents of whatever party and whatever ideology to think well beyond their own term, because that's what the job requires. But I think generally what appears to be happening is probably a couple of things. One is we had a we had a huge pandemic and it shook up the economy in all these crazy ways that people are still trying to get their head around. The actual st state of the economy is difficult to read. One way we can think about that is that there have been predictions of recession going back for more than a year. And yes, and on Wednesday, um, the Commerce Department um, revised third quarter GDP and it's over 5%. Recession hasn't happened. The base case now for a lot of economists is that there's going to be a, quote, soft landing, which is to say the Federal Reserve will have raised interest rates sufficiently to tame inflation, not crater jobs, and not bring America into a recession. That would have been seen as a fantasy long ago. And we should talk about the fact that there was a period in June of 2022 or the summer of 2022, where is if, if you said that America was not in a recession, you would be hounded by all kinds of people, many of them on the right, um, for being out of touch with things. So we don't know how to talk about this economy, which is part of a larger problem. But I think the base case is inflation was really high. The, the purchasing power, people's uh, ability to afford the goods that are a part of their lives was significantly damaged as a result as a result of the pandemic, the supply chain shocks that were that that were a part of that, uh, and America is still recovering. The rate of inflation is increasing; it's just not increasing as fast as it was. And it's and and the fact that it's coming down means it's getting close to the Fed's two percent target of inflation, which is um, presumably where it wants to be before it uh, increases rates again. But I think the hangover from inflation is is considerable. Um, people are still reeling from that. And they do see prices in some cases still going up. Even if it's by a little, it reminds them of how much they've gone up over this period of time. Now, there are plenty of places where, where prices are not going up. If you look at gas prices, they are down a great deal, um, about 60 cents from September. So, And I think then finally, the other last point is that um, the coverage of the economy spends a lot of time interviewing people who say, inflation really bothers me. And then a lot of reports about it, inflation really bothers people. And then it gets pulled and they say, well, inflation bothers people as opposed to energy and being spent on 
why inflation is the way it is, where it's going, where it has been, which policies are likely to improve the inflation picture or make them worse. A lot of that stuff doesn't get discussed. I mean, Emily, we've talked about this a lot on the on the GabFest, but inflation is just a universal crusher for politicians uh, because everyone feels it. And people, even when wages are going up, which they have been, so that for most people, for wage earners, their wages have actually exceeded the rate of inflation if you if you look over the past several years. But it doesn't feel that way. You feel like you've earned your wage increase, but that the inflation is just something that's been taken from you. Inflation is theft. And people just don't feel that inflation is anything but some kind of particular curse on them. Yeah. Hangover, John's word, seems so apt to me. I mean, don't we all feel this way? Don't you have the idea that prices are supposed to be where they were like 10 or 20 or even 30 years ago, right? I mean, this is going to make me seem so old, but I still am surprised by the price of like a candy bar changing from when I was like 10 years old. And gas prices especially are something I feel so sensitive to. I'm not even really sure why exactly, except that they loom so large in neon lights on the highway when you're driving by. And then when you finish filling up your car, it costs so much more money than one expects it to. And I just feel like even though it's pretty irrational. And I have read a lot of times that now inflation is at like 3% as opposed to 9%. It doesn't matter that much because things still cost more than I'm expecting. It's like my brain just hasn't caught up. It is. They do cost more than you expected. They just cost less more than they did before. And that's good. Right. But my idea of what they should cost is much lower than what, like, it's not real, actually, my ideas about what they should cost. And I'm on, honestly... I also think that, you know, I was reading this morning that some big ticket items like electronics have actually gone down uh, and somehow that matters less, even though, of course, if you save $50 on, you know, a new phone, that could be more money than the, you know, increase in the price of eggs over several weeks, depending on how many eggs you eat or months. It just doesn't matter. Somehow it's like being dinged in little ways. Right. You Right. It's the death by a thousand cuts because you do these purchases, you buy groceries all the time and you buy gas frequently. And also you have a better sense, honestly, you don't really have a sense about what should a phone cost or what should a computer cost. Like that's not, that's not ingrained in the way the price of a carton of eggs, the price of a gallon of milk, the price of a gallon of gas is, is ingrained in most people. And so I think that makes a big difference. I also think that another big piece of this is just for those people who are thinking about buying a house or selling a house, which is, generally a large chunk of people, it's a terrible, difficult time because it's unclear whether this is a good moment to buy, a good moment to sell. It's The interest rates are so high that it it makes any kind of transaction sort of complicated and, and prohibitively difficult in a way that it wasn't for decades. Right. If you have a 30-year fixed at 3%, you're not likely to sell your house to get a 30-year fixed for your next one at whatever it is right. now, like 7 or right. whatever the percent. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of these people who sold a house at, the, at a really good time, but now I'm in, in a rental apartment. I just can't... The thought of buying something now seems so inconceivable to me because these interest rates are so crazy high. So I've already made my point about I think a lot of energy should go to understanding the the drivers of inflation, why we are where we are, how much of it was a result of the pandemic policies, but also then how much it was a result of political choices that may or may not have been smart. I mean, I think the the Biden administration, which goes back to your original point about Bidenomics, made a, made a, a decision that unemployment would be worse 
the risk of, of high unemployment was worse to American families than the risk of inflation. In a political context, we as analysts and voters don't know what life would be like if unemployment was at 9%. Unemployment when Biden came into office was six something, six, five, six, seven. That was the unemployment rate when Bill Clinton ran in 1992 saying it's the economy stupid. And the reason he said that is America was coming out of a recession, but also because the unemployment rate was that high. That was a huge knock on on George Herbert Walker Bush. Well, the unemployment rate has driven, dropped significantly under Joe Biden, but he doesn't get the kind of benefit you would expect if you use the political prism of that 1992 race in which lowering unemployment was the was one of the key measurements of economic health. So we don't quite know how to handle report and digest the economic dogs that didn't bark. And then just two other things I would point out. One, if you look at if people care about inflation, there should be a lot of talk about, hey, what would happen if Donald Trump were reelected and his tax cut was continued? One of the biggest drivers of the debt, which people believe as a result has an effect on inflation. Trump's policies are not exactly inflation lowerers. Um, and finally, if you think that one of the ways you lower inflation is by uh, limiting the debt, then who as a voter, would you rather have making those choices, a Republican or a Democrat, when you think about um, reforming the programs, Medicare and Social Security? Like, those are all the questions that should be part of the conversation that aren't. Emily, there was a really good piece about the current economic situation in contrast to what Ronald Reagan faced in 1983, 1984, the Reagan economy, arguably in much worse shape, even in the 1984 presidential election than the current economy, much higher interest rates, higher unemployment. It hadn't had quite the same recovery. And yet Reagan successfully ran a 1984 re-election campaign on Morning in America, this economic miracle. He was turning things around. Is Biden not able to do that because he's a bad messenger? If, if Bill Clinton or Barack Obama had this economy, would, would people be talking about Morning in America? Or is it because actually it's not the message. It's not the. It's not the rhetoric that makes the difference. It is something about how people feel that's beyond rhetoric. I mean, it does seem like Reagan was a particularly blessed messenger with a halo around his head in a way that I didn't understand at the time and still don't. But also. The mid 80s relative to the 70s were so much better. And we don't have that in the same way. I mean, we have that we should remember the, you know, Great Recession of 2008, nine. But the last decade before the pandemic, before, you know, inflation started rising was better. And so I feel like the relative strength or weakness of the economy makes such a difference in how you judge presidential performance fairly or unfairly. Really great point. I would say another thing is that when I was working on my book, I went back and looked at the the political coverage of economic conditions. And it's basically always, well, in the modern era, it's been true that there's just a tonnage more of news about bad things that happen than good things. And so the inflation story is a particular one. Like it's really easy to go to a grocery store and stick a camera, you know, a microphone in front of somebody and they say, oh my gosh, prices are up this year. There was, it was funny in, in Thanksgiving because even though turkey prices were down and yam prices were down, overall, the inflation picture on Thanksgiving was good. And yet there were still stories about how like, I don't know, beets Everything or something were so still much. up. Something. I mean, it's just you can like, always find some ingredient. You can always find. Um, and so the negative bias that's been with the the news in the news for a while has been long, but I would, I would perhaps turn the great recession on its head, Emily, and say that actually people may remember the great recession. That in fact, 
people remember that it happened and that um, a lot of people got screwed, but it didn't seem like the bankers did. And this system, this political system into which we used to put our faith as voters um, is constantly not delivering for us. And that that irritation, that larger sense of like, why should I care about what happens to a political system that has repeatedly not been delivering for us? I think that's woven into some of the feeling here. I think also some of the political polling feeling is economic questions have essentially become you know, another way of asking, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? That people basically see the economy. If Joe Biden's president, the economy is terrible. If Donald Trump's president, it's great. I also wonder whether when we think about the economy and it's and high inflation, whether it's just another way of saying we had a pandemic. Like, in other words, there are lots of policy choices that were made, but the big thing in American life that happened was a pandemic. And that kind of gets lost a little bit in these conversations. Back to your point, Emily, we've forgotten even the kind of super recent past. And it's important to remember that if you look around the world, you see parties in power getting slammed when they're up for election, parties that have ruled through the pandemic, because in almost every country, A, the recovery has been worse, and the party in power is held responsible for this global pandemic that was not their certainly not the responsibility of, of the conservative party in England or, or of the democratic party in the United States. It's, it is, has nothing to do with it, but there is this resentment against a political system that was present during this time of great disruption. And now, uh, everything isn't back. So given all this, Emily, let's close by talking about how Joe Biden and the Democrats can possibly fight this. It seems like the more you tell people the economy is good, the more annoyed they get with you. So what is it that Biden and the Democrats should hope for to uh, buoy their election prospects next year? I have no idea. Less conversation about the economy, only talking about what John highlighted about how Trump's policies could make inflation juiced up once again. I, I don't know. There's just something kind of hopeless to me about this with Biden, and I don't think I entirely understand it. John, <laughs> uh, I, Sorry. Um, I would guess, I guess I would, again, I would, I would say I would fr frame it slightly different than the way you did, David, but like, let's imagine you had no politics at all, but just wanted to try to figure out what the hell was happening and the best ways to think about it. I think you, you have to first think about what a president and, and a president's administration has control over in an economy. Um, and so the question of whether the next president is going to uh, support the extension of the Trump tax cuts um, is a big question. Um, secondarily, is the next president going to um, reform Social Security and Medicare, which have um, some deficits uh, within their individual trust funds and that also are major drivers of the debt, which people believe now is having an effect on the economy. Who do you want in the driver's seat when those conversations are taking place, um, which is not just about specific policies, but also about whether the person in the driver's seat believes that um, that working together between the executive and the legislature is the way you make policy um, and that it doesn't happen through some magical process that actually is unrealistic. And the reason that's important is when you set unrealistic expectations, nothing ever actually happens. I would say also when Donald Trump says he wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, I think that's part of the economic questions related to a president, because the way a lot of people interact with the economy is, of course, they're incredibly high um, um, medical bills. And also the, the economy is essentially a proxy for your sense of personal security and obviously health care, the cost of health care, whether you can actually get um, you see a doctor is all a part of that as well. So those are all things that should be in the conversation, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I would, 
I would argue that probably all of those are issues that that benefit Joe Biden if he sets the stakes for what the actual next election is about. I would also add one final thing, which is not politically maybe so good because I don't know that people pay attention um, to this. But the huge questions of the economy and what's happened to the middle class in the last 40 years are still alive. It's what a, what's a part of these labor debates. It's what's a part of the, the disparity between CEO pay and median worker pay. It's what's a part of the education question um, and whether people have access to the American dream that we've talked about before. Whose policies will give you any kind of shot at that? And then the only, only final point is presidents can't really talk their way out of economies where people don't feel so good. The only way they can do it really is by saying the other guy's policies are going to be worse. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Emily, again, mouth no. Stick around for our bonus segment. We're going to be talking about the library. I have become a library zealot, a library super fan after many years of not going all kinds of books at the library. I just got an email this morning about a book I put on hold. Um, but I can afford to buy books, so should I stop going to the library and buy books instead? We're going to talk about that conundrum. But this segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you very much. You have been supporting us and allowing us to keep the show going these many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider signing up. You will get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest, as well as many other Slate podcasts. You'll get discounts to live shows. You won't hit the paywall on the Slate site and a lot more. So if you are a member, again, thank you. If you're not a member, go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hey, Slate Plus members. It is survey time again, which means it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate. The survey will only take a few minutes, and you can find it at Slate.com slash survey. Again, that's Slate.com slash survey. What poor victim of injustice will be protected by those stalwart tribunes of freedom on the Roberts court this week. Why look, it's hedge fund fraudster and conservative activist, George Jarchezzi, who believes he should not have to pay a $300,000 fine or disgorge $680,000 in ill-gotten gains. The fine imposed on him by an SEC adjudicator. Why, Emily, why is poor George Jarchezzi a victim of the, of the deep state? Because the deep state is so oppressive and is depriving him of a trial by jury. That was the main message from the Supreme Court this week. This is a case that in some ways it's kind of crazy that it's before the Supreme Court because it's yet another case in which the um, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, that jurisdiction has kind of uh, gone far, let us say, and basically saying that the SEC shouldn't exist anymore. Maybe it should be dissolved because just forming it was um, such a huge government overreach. The Supreme Court wasn't willing to go that far, but it is talking in a way, the six conservatives were talking in a way that seemed to really question the powers of enforcement of federal administrative agencies. And so immediately the issue here, yes, is the SEC and whether it can use administrative law judges um, in a federal agency to allow the government to sue people like George Darkese. And so basically we're talking about civil actions that um, federal agencies bring against people where they end up having to pay damages, but they don't get a jury trial. 
the thing is, it's not really just about the SEC because there are a lot of federal agencies that bring enforcement actions. So think about the IRS, the EPA. There's a pretty long list. And the way that the justices were talking about administrative law judges and their powers within agencies that are different from federal courts with the jury trial seemed like it could end up being very sweeping. It's a really complicated case. And there are some implications that administrative law judges as a category should not exist, even though there are thousands of them, because the, the, the president doesn't have the power to remove them. In the same way as regular federal judges. Well, no, not as federal judges. The president doesn't have the power to remove federal judges. Oh, I mean, wait, wait, wait. In the, the same way as he has other, other administrative, administrative officials. officials because, Sorry. because they're too insulated from presidential control. So that's one thing they're considering. So, Emily, this is not the only case that the Supreme Court is going to consider this term, which would really gut the power of federal bureaucracy and the federal government to do its job. So it's also going to take on a case involving Chevron deference. Why is this case different than Chevron deference? Chevron deference is about the standard that federal courts use to review the actions of federal agencies when those agencies are making regulations based on not entirely crystal clear written statutes. This case is about the idea that these administrative law judges oversee civil actions against defendants. It's about the enforcement powers of the federal government. And that's why this is in some ways an even more fundamental potential blow. You know, what's really going on here has to do with shifting costs, right? Because if the SEC can't use its administrative law judges anymore to oversee these cases, they can still sue people in federal court. It's just that that costs much more money. That's like a bigger deal, a higher stakes proceeding in which defendants have more uh, opportunities to challenge the government. It just becomes a more expensive endeavor. And so what you're likely to see here, if the court really does basically like kneecap the SEC or other agencies, are just going to be fewer enforcement actions. And we're talking about, you know, the SEC, the IRS, um, the EPA. These are agencies that tend to go after corporate defendants, white collar offenders, people who have resources. And so really, the best way to think about this is part of the conservative Supreme Court skepticism about enforcing regulations against those kinds of actors. Emily, is the difference between the SEC case and the Chevron deference that it feels like Chevron deference is about a misalignment of the separation of powers, whereas isn't this case in the SEC, isn't there a Seventh Amendment issue, which is you are protected in the Constitution um, or allowed to have a, a jury trial, and that, that, that this one of the arguments is this runs afoul of the Constitution, as opposed to this runs afoul of the proper equilibrium between the different branches. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of a constitutional cut at this question of separation of powers. And so what the Seventh Amendment says is that you have a right to a jury trial in a civil action if the underlying complaint is at common law. So like fraud, for example, if you're being sued, then you get to have a jury trial. What the court has developed for many years, especially there's a big precedent from the 1970s at issue here, is this idea that if the government creates a public right, if there's some kind of public um, good it's trying to promote, and in this case, the idea is like you're enforcing fines against a bad actor and that's good for the public, then you're allowed to do that outside of the context of the Seventh Amendment and the right to a jury trial because that's not a common law um, offense. And that's the issue here. And the problem underlying this is that the court's doctrine about what's a public right and what is that common law is not totally clear. Like you can just 
just saying the words, you can imagine that you could be like, wait a minute, what is a public right? How is that really different? And so these conservative justices seem very concerned with that messiness. It comes back again to this fundamental foundational disagreement about the nature of American government these days, that there's a, there's this principle in conservative America, which is that there are federal bureaucrats and bureaucracies that are ruining businesses and imposing bad regulations and preventing people from doing, creating jobs and earning a living. And they're doing it through all kinds of mechanisms, administrative law judges, Chevron deference in every, you know, EPA regulating uh, CO2, whatever it is. And then on the other side is this idea that there's a government of experts that the government's job is to protect citizens from fraud, to keep pollution out of the air. And those two things are intention. And we see, like, they've been intention for for our whole lifetime. And now we see, and in, in the 70s when we were growing up, clearly the side that was winning was the side, was the side that is for more regulation, clean up the air, have Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, all of that stuff, allow the EPA to do whatever it wants, uh, protect those wetlands. And now... This judicial shift is just part of a part of a, a a wave that is swamping that idea. I mean, this is what your your husband Paul Emily has written about, and but it's clear, like ideologically, the side that the conservatives are on. Uh, I mean, may, they they might not have public support, but they definitely have now the legal infrastructure, the judges on the court, and a political movement behind them that is going to shift the the that shift how we think about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's a giant backlash to those impulses, which one does associate, especially with the 1970s. Bill Clinton used to make the case that, you know, you want institutions to exist um, because of what you mentioned, David, which is the, the institutional expertise on issues that Congress can't move fast enough to deal with. Um, you can't readdress every complicated advancement of modernity but, but by getting Congress together and getting its act together. So you need power to be given to the agencies. On the other hand, institutions become institutionalized and they get sclerotic and they have flaws and there is there should be a way to redress those flaws. The problem is that the ability to redress those flaws, which would be through nimble legislation, is basically dead. And so because of that, which would be the, the healthy functioning of this body, it's gone into the Supreme Court, which is this blunt instrument, which then reduces everything to this fight between, you know, do we believe in experts or not? Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, we deal with so many basic issues of American life through litigation, through the courts in this country in a way that you really would want them fought out in the democratically elected branches. And that just ends up not being how it's working for the reasons that you said. And now with a record number of, re of people leaving Congress... We're going to have a younger, dumber uh, Congress that is more radicalized. And so the prospect for um, tailored legislation would seem to be a little bit darker. Right. I mean, there is this these two. We've talked about this, but the two ideas that the Supreme Court is very interested in. One is the unitary executive that the president has full authority over the entire federal bureaucracy in every in every way and the other is the idea that that we have to let congress legislate and we'll have an active legislative congress and a unitary executive but we all know that congress can't legislate it is incapable of it so we we are only left with one leg of the theory which is that you have a unitary executive and nothing else and then you have the courts just like 
inserting themselves in every which way. And it's very funny that the solution that the court is coming up with in the Georgia Kesey case is more federal lawsuits. Like that's their answer is federal judges should decide everything. Federal judges decide, decide this, decide that. And, and so a unitary executive plus a lot of federal judges deciding things seems like a terrible, terrible way for the world to exist. Where do they find in the original text of the founders all the support for this vision of the presidency that they're promoting? It just seems like everything in the original text is goes against this theory. And I don't, it befuddles me. We're joined by Tim Alberta, who's a writer at The Atlantic. He has a brilliant article in The Atlantic adapted from his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. The article is My Father, My Faith, and Donald Trump. And it's an article in part about his father, Richard Alberta, a white conservative Christian evangelical pastor from Michigan who died in 2019. So, Tim, can you start by telling us a little bit about your father and what his life tells us about the story of Christianity in modern America? My dad was an atheist, came from a broken home. He actually found a really lucrative, successful career in New York in finance. And um, when he was uh, about 30 years old, he had a pretty dramatic conversion experience coming to believe in Jesus Christ, um, despite being an atheist, despite having almost no interest in any thing related to religion, organized or otherwise. And not long after that, he felt the calling to enter ministry. And uh, basically his entire family, friends, everybody thought he was nuts. My mom thought he was nuts. She was not a Christian. You know, all these years later, uh, here I am looking back on it, talking about it matter of factly, but at the time it was just a, a completely crazy thing for someone in his position to do. And, um, and so he became a pastor, and that's how I was raised. I was raised like literally inside the church. My mom, who of course did become a born-again Christian herself, she was on staff at the church where I grew up in Michigan, and like my entire childhood was spent in this church. This was my life. It was my family. It was my community, and it was a good life, and it was a good family, and it was a good community. Um, but as I grew older, I, I think as many people raised in that sort of environment do, I started to uh, see some things and, and observe some things that made me uneasy, really about sort of institutional Christianity. And, um, and that created a little bit of friction in my relationship with my dad. We disagreed on things. It was always loving and respectful. Uh, we had an awesome relationship, but we just saw things a little bit differently, which I think is not uncommon given some of the sort of generational schisms that we see in Christianity today. Your story, which is so, it manages to be gentle and incisive at the same time. And it's really about the changes in your father's church. And and I think you kind of observing him too, which is always so hard to do as a writer. And I guess I should say too, that he passed away a few years ago. So you're kind of looking back on him and the transition since then. You know, are there events during his life, you know, political events that you feel like were catalysts for how things changed at the church while he was still alive? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First, you know, my dad was never all that political. Uh, he, he really talked to me and to my brothers about politics as an exercise in character. And so to the extent that I can ever really remember him being political, it was around two things. It was around abortion, which he felt was not even a political issue. He felt that it was a moral and ethical and spiritual issue because uh, humanity is made in the image of God. The second thing was 
really the the Lewinsky scandal. I mean, that was a formative moment for me as a kid. I mean, my parents even had a viewing party in their living room for George W. Bush's inauguration, not because they were excited about George W. Bush, really, but because it signaled the return of morality to the Oval Office. I mean, that's how deeply invested people like my parents were in this idea of, of character and integrity being essential in public life. What started to change was, and this is true for my dad, and I think it's certainly true for uh, the evangelical movement at large, was you know, into the 2000s, certainly into the Obama years, a feeling that the culture was rapidly slipping away from them, that the, that the country was changing so dramatically uh, that Christianity w- had lost its foothold, that the, that the country's values were no longer reflective of the sort of, you know, what they see as the Judeo-Christian heritage of, of the United States. And this sort of like sky is falling, barbarians are at the gates mentality suddenly, I think, changed the calculus of a lot of these folks. And I would include my dad in that. Now, I would also say that there's a spectrum here. And my dad was a pretty serious believer, a pretty serious theologian who was able to compartmentalize some of the kind of political panic he felt, if I can use that word, but also understanding and saying to his congregation all the time, which he was sort of famous for saying, God doesn't bite his fingernails. Like you need to understand that like winning or losing some election does not change the fact that God is sovereign over all of these events. But all of all of that sort of almost apocalyptic uh, rhetoric inside the evangelical movement that was building and building and building predating Trump, I think in some ways uh, kind of framed Trump's own shotgun marriage with the evangelical world, because here's this guy who, despite not sharing their values, not sharing their beliefs, he almost, his superpower is that he can act in ways, he can do things, he can say things that are not restrained by a belief in, in, in Christ. And, and so that, that Trump's, Trump's rise specifically in a lot of ways, was really the culmination of this kind of decades-long trend that we'd been seeing. And I think for, for, for my relationship with my dad, it was really when things started to get tough because we just did not see eye to eye on Trump and, and, and specifically how Trump commingled with evangelical Christianity. Tim, how much was in, in, in your, with your father or as you've reported on it and watched it, how much did this wolf at the door feeling there's there's often a, d- a debate between well the wolf's at the door we must do whatever we we can to fix the situation and then there are others who've responded by saying you know my commandment is is love the other like i would have loved you which is basically throw in more love don't censure don't talk about their lack of character just drown them in love um which has a you know there's you can find that in scripture how much was that ever a part of the conversation um cuz i'm always struck by the if Christ calls us not to judge, then the excessive amount of judgment that's a part of what you've described should be a contradiction to wrestle with. It's a heck of a contradiction to wrestle with, John. And I think in many ways, what I try to do with this book is to to, to examine the the fracture within the church now as it pertains to what you were just describing, and also to even take it a step further, perhaps, which is to say that you know, the, the New Testament model where the early church operates under a, a sort of paradigm in which we are 
instructed to be incredibly gracious and loving and generous towards the outsider because they don't know better. They don't know God. They are not in relationship with God. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to show them the mercy and the love, unconditional love uh, of Jesus. On the inside of the church, we are to practice real strict accountability. We are are to hold these people to, to the highest standard possible. And that New Testament model in the modern age of evangelicalism has been completely inverted. We we have nothing but abounding grace and forgiveness and justification and enabling for those inside the movement. But for anyone on the outside, it's it's fire and brimstone. And I, I think that's probably the most troubling thing for me as, as someone raised in the evangelical tradition. People will often say, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be evangelical? And I'll kind of joke and say, well, there is a verb in there, right? The verb is evangelize, right? If you are going to evangelize, that means that you are going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I believe is the most precious gift this world's ever received, and take it to the outside world that does not know him and that and that is desperate to be in relationship with him. But we haven't been able to do that very effectively because the outside world thinks that we're full of it. And, and you know, understandably so. This is a really depressing article for a lot of reasons. But, you know, these people who I'm sure are kind to their children and pet their dogs and root for the same football team um, are filled with so much rage and fear about their fellow Americans. They love America so much that they hate their f- most Americans or many Americans. And I guess my question to you is after spending so much time with your neighbors and your family and in, in a world that a lot of people who, who live in journalist circles don't, don't uh, transit very much. Is there any antidote? Do you feel there's any antidote to this? Is there any way that this fever might break and, or move in some kind of healthier direction? Or do you see no positive signs in that way? Okay, so I, I do see a couple of positive signs. I really do, and I'm not I'm not just saying it um, to to try to put a happy ending on what's a pretty dark story. Um, one of the optimistic notes I would strike, and this was a real revelation to me in in the course of my reporting over the last three four years, when you talk with young people, young Christians. I refer to them at one point in the book as the children of the moral majority. And I, I sort of count myself uh, among that group, right? I mean, that was my parents' generation. Um, I, I think the children of the moral majority are very clear-eyed about what's happened here. And and even at a place like Liberty University, which in some ways has become like the avatar of the corruption of American evangelicalism, I've spent a ton of time at Liberty. I've done extensive investigative reporting there. And 99% of the students there, even though they are personally conservative, theologically, culturally, politically, they are horrified by Trumpism. They are horrified by the compromises made inside the church. They want nothing to do with any of this. And so, and you see that same thing with younger people, younger believers all across the country. So that is a real source of optimism for me, because I think that they can can see what's gone wrong here and, and they're going to they're going to be a big part of the course correction. The other thing I would say to the first part of your question, like is there an antidote? You know, the antidote my, my dad used to say like the 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 um 
the the answer to bad theology is good theology. Like the antidote is right there in front of us. Like Jesus said, the two great commands are love the Lord your God with all your mind and all your heart and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And, and, and like, this ain't complicated. There are parts of the Bible that are complicated, very complicated. And we have to analyze and debate and, you know, this is not complicated. Love your neighbor. And, and, and I feel like if, if, if we were just to, to wrap, rewrap our minds around that very basic concept and try to process all of our, you know, political disputes and, and culture war stuff through that prism of loving our neighbor, boy, what a better place we'd be. I wanted to ask you about um, what has happened to your father's church in the last couple of years. Um, there's a really interesting part of your story about Chris Winans, who is the pastor who took over the church. And you say that he seemed like such a good fit, but he wasn't a conservative Republican. And he changed some of the traditions in the church that seemed to really and seemed to be losing people in droves, um, at least in 2021 and uh, and struggling himself. And I wondered what has happened to him since then. Well, you'll have to read the end of the book to find out what happened to him. Sorry, I, I, my, publi- my publicist made me do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, it's really, it's really interesting because Chris is a wonderful, wonderful guy who I've almost come to think of as, as a brother because in some ways, you know, my, my dad was like a father figure to him uh, who, you know, my dad and I had all these political disagreements and... Um, and he had his flaws, just like anybody does. I certainly have more than my fair share. But one of the things I really think was incredibly courageous uh, on the part of my dad to do was he chose this guy to be his successor, despite knowing, not not, not despite knowing, because of the fact that this guy was not a MAGA conservative Republican. In other words, I think my dad saw the value after 25 years leading this church of saying, hey, it's time to challenge the thinking of, of these folks. Let's let's make sure that they understand that not everybody who worships Jesus and, and who is a part of your faith tradition thinks about all of these political and cultural th- things the same way that you do. The problem is that my dad died very quickly after that succession. Uh, and, and so the guy who was the sort of the godfather, if you will, who was supposed to be there and having his back, suddenly he's out of the picture. And then COVID-19 hits and George Floyd is murdered and Donald Trump says the election is stolen. And the next thing you know, the church is just sort of spiraling out of control. And this young guy who just wants to preach the gospel and who doesn't care about all the political stuff, he's basically being run out of the church with you know torches and pitchforks. And he gets to a place where uh, he starts to wonder if it's just time for him to walk away, walk away from the church, maybe even walk away from ministry. And I, I will just say, Emily, like this is this is an epidemic in the American church. You have pastors everywhere, and I and I I talk about a lot of them in my book. Who they went to seminary, they learned Greek, they 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 have they have incredible biblical minds. They never learned how to deal with you know racial tension. They they didn't they didn't take a a, a PhD level course in uh, sort of untangling uh, the culture war disputes boiling over in their congregation. So they're completely ill equipped for this. And a guy like Chris who thinks, well, I love the Lord and I know my scripture inside and out, and and I want to disciple people. Um, that's not enough anymore for a lot of these guys. 
that's the most striking thing is that when you can't point to, you know, John 15 and say, all right, everybody back to the central point. Like if you lose that power, if, if people are just like, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever, love the other, then like, oh my, it just, what you just described feels like such a, <clears throat> how do, where do you go next? Um, which may, which leads me to my question to you, Tim. So, um, I'm also a fellow Christian, but a Catholic. And so the Catholics have had their share of reasons to be um, uh, disappointed in their church and their church leaders in the perversion, what a lot of people would say, of Christ's teachings in the, in the daily lives of the people that uh, Catholics turn to for guidance. So I've had my own, um, you know, winding relationship. If it's not too personal a question to ask, how... What's this? How's your faith? It's not too personal of a question to ask, John. I'll, I'll be, I'll be really honest with you guys. I was so worried about my faith at the beginning of this process. Um, <laughs> by way of context, I I had just come off of you know covering the Trump presidency and really spending the last ten years writing about the implosion of the Republican Party and the rise of like the militant far right and you know getting a lot of death threats and and dealing with a lot of unpleasantness. And as my, as my follow-up assignment, I chose the crack up of the American church. And like, you know, my wife even said to me, like, are you sure you want to do this? Like it, uh, like this might not be good for your mental health. You're already in kind of a fragile place. And I have to say, like, um, if you're listening to this and you're not a believer, you might think that I'm, uh, I'm whacked out or, or whatever. That's fine. But like, I've just, my relationship with Jesus has never been better. And he, I've just leaned on the Lord throughout this whole process. I've never felt, I, I've just, I keep waiting for this feeling of like the, the, the carpet being pulled out from underneath me and feeling like I'm alone and, um, adrift and I haven't felt it. And, and I've just, and I, I thank God for that. I, I just think, um, I just think that he's been really faithful to me throughout this process. Tim Alberta is the author of The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, thanks for coming on the GapFest. You guys are great. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you're like boozing up to prepare for a conundrum show, uh, what are you going to be chattering about? I have been thinking about the photographer Larry Fink this week, who died at the age of 82. He was kind of amazing studier of contrast. He His work is both about like these elite socialites, um, these beautiful pictures of people at parties or, you know, singing at nightclubs. And then also about very um, working class people in Martins Creek, Pennsylvania, a place where he took a great deal of pictures. I had the privilege of working with him a bunch of years ago on a story in Louisiana about people who had been convicted of crimes and who were innocent, and they had been convicted by juries that were not unanimous. And so we were looking for um, people who'd since been released and also the jurors who had not believed in their guilt and who had been right about that and who in almost any other state that doubt would have hung the jury and the person wouldn't have been convicted. But because at the time, Louisiana allowed convictions by non-unanimous juries. Um, their word wasn't decisive. Anyway, I loved working with Larry on this project. He was just enormously sensitive to... Um, you know, the very regular people we were working with, they were not 
elite socialites. Um, and we kind of spent a few days tooling around and he just took as much time and patience um, really as people would give him to take these lovely photographs that accompanied my story. So anyway, thinking about him with um, a lot of emotion this week. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is, uh, we got a log roll on a chatter. One is the Judd Apatow's uh, Bob and Don, A Love Story, which is a short film about the friendship between Bob Newhart and Don Rickles, um, two comedians from a period in the 60s and 70s that uh, was kind of our growing up, I guess, a little bit. But um, anyway, it was, uh, it's... um, it's beautiful. The second thing is that um, on CBS Sunday morning this Sunday, I have an interview with Liz Cheney, who has a book out. Um, and um, I went down to uh, Charlottesville to interview her, where she is a um, professor of practice uh, at UVA. And um, I think it's worth checking out. And so um, it'll be on this Sunday. Uh, and I hope you'll all watch it. I was just reading about that book. Sounds fascinating. Excited to see that. My chatter is about a death, um, that another death, uh, and one that really moved me, um, not Henry Kissinger. Uh, I saw the news this morning, we're taping Thursday morning, that Shane McGowan, who was the, the front man for the Pogues, died. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank, an old man said to me, and see another one And then we sang a song The Pogues, if you don't know them, are an Irish punk band late 70s through the 80s into the early 90s. I guess they still tour today. Shane, Shane was the front man um, in their first 15, 20 years or so. And terrible teeth, alcoholic, uh, just a, a, a wreck of a person, but an extraordinary songwriter and performer. And um, the, no music has meant as much to me in my life as, as the Pogues. They were the first, the first concert I ever went to was a 930 Club performance of the Pogues, uh, the old 930 Club. Um, Shane McGowan was just drank an entire bottle of whiskey during the show, collapsed on the stage, um, Saw them a couple of years later at, at Mary Meriwether Post Pavilion, maybe with 10,000 Maniacs. He drank a huge amount, fell asleep on the stage. Um, he was a person who, whose life was, was chaotic and terrible, but he wrote songs that were just, um, they were gorgeous and moving and deeply emotional and like really captured the experience of, of Irish immigrant life in England and Irish life. Um, Dark Streets of London, Dirty Old Town, A Man You Don't Meet Every Day, Pair of Brown Eyes, Fairy Tale of New York. Um, and he was, you know, I'm I'm not drawn to self-destructive people. I'm a, uh, that, that, that nostalgia, that romance doesn't move me at all. Um, but in, I was drawn to Shane McGowan um, because he was, he was just such an extraordinary performer. And I think everyone who was a fan of the Pogues, whenever you meet another fan of the Pogues, you talk about how like you couldn't believe that Shane McGowan was still alive. Like I remember even when Shane McGowan was 30 and we talk about Shane McGowan, you're like, how is he still alive? He's obviously so self-destructive. And yet he lived to be 65, which is which is an extraordinary triumph. But um man, I I appreciate the music that he brought to me and in my life. Um and I will miss him.
we have a wonderful listener chatter this week. Uh, also an Irish listener chatter, actually. You guys have been sending us great chatters, emailing them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And uh, it's actually really appropriate that we have an, a poetic Irish chatter um, from Nicola Reddy in Dublin. Dear Gabfesters, it's Nicola here in Dublin. For all the cat lovers out there, I wanted to point you towards a sweet poem written over a thousand years ago by an Irish Benedictine monk. Known as the scholar and his cat Pangerbon, the poem was found scribbled in the margins of a 9th century manuscript, like an ancient doodle. In it, the scholar compares his work to that of his pet cat. He chases words while his cat chases mice, and the two of them work together peacefully side by side. Here are a few verses from the poem which are translated from the Old Irish by historian Robin Flower. I in Pangerbon, my cat, Tis a like task we are at. Hunting mice is his delight. Hunting words I sit all night. Better far than praise of men, tis to sit with book and pen. Panger bears me no ill will, he too plies his simple skill. So in peace our task we ply, Panger born my cat and I. In our arts we find our bliss, I have mine and he has his. Practice every day has made Panger perfect in his trade. I get wisdom day and night, turning darkness into light. Wishing you all the best, Nicola. Can you see the hairs on my arm standing up? John, it's, it's, oh a, it's a, I can see it. Oh, yeah. Wow. I knew that would be a Dickerson pleaser there. This is an everyone pleaser. Send us your chatter. Gaffets at slate.com. Top that one. our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Shana Roth, our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Ops, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please join us at our Conundrum show at the 92nd Street Y next Thursday night, uh, December 7th. Get tickets at slate.com slash Live. We really want to see you there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Klotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Shh, shh, shh. We're in the library. We're at the library. So I, for reasons I can't really even understand, I have become a library zealot again. After after probably 20 years of really not going to the library, I have a library that's down the street from me, really good library. And one day I just thought, oh, there's a book I was looking for. I went in. The book was on the shelf. It was it was actually the Wizard of Earthsea, the Ursula Gwynn book. I realized I'd never oh. read the Wizard of Earthsea. I was mm, like, I'll go one. read it. Uh, I don't want to go buy it. It's, I'm walking by the library. I'll go in. And I didn't have a li- even have a library card, but it took me two seconds to get another library card. Um, though I've been a, going to D.C. public libraries for 53 years. Uh, and anyway, and since I've been, I've now become a habitué of the library. I have now half a dozen books on hold. One was just released to me today, which I'm going to go get after after this taping. Um, and I am loving it. But I've been struck by this moral dilemma, which I need you guys to help me solve, which is I can afford to buy books. I have written books. I believe book authors should be supported. Um, am I doing wrong by borrowing Kylie Reed's book, such a fun age from the library or Anthony McCartan's book uh, going zero from the library rather than buying it. 
and supporting these authors who've worked so hard, more directly supporting these authors who've worked so hard. Uh, so should I stop going to the library? I don't think anyone should feel guilty ever for taking a book out of the library. I don't know. I just can't. I think part of it's that I grew up basically never buying books. Like we went to the library all the time because with kids books, you read them so quickly. I don't know. It would be really hard to keep up if you weren't going to the library. I think it's also totally great to buy books, but the notion that like one is better than the other is foreign to me. I agree. If you write books, you are in the community of book reading. You are. And, and so while it might deprive you of, you know, your royalty share or something, if people go to the library, people who go to the library are tilling the earth. That is the prerequisite for the whole book experience. So, uh, of course, you should go to the library and do whatever you want. I write in my books, and so I can't do the library because I like to mark up my books and I like to have, you know, um, uh, the little post-it notes in them, and so that oh, no, that doesn't work for me. But libraries in the modern age as a um, non-technology oasis um, where y you can create spaces for deep thinking um, and for long looking and for uh, focus. I am so into, I mean, uh, so I'm all for libraries and for your. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 